You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's Word of Hope. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Amen. Dear saints, let's talk politics. And then take a look at the gospel text. In a few weeks, we'll go to the polls and we'll vote for president and for congressmen, senators, and for uh, judges and all sorts of other ballot initiatives. And this is important. Perhaps the importance can be seen on how often we're hearing about this. And perhaps you thought, well, I'll go to church and I'll get a little break from politics. But I think I want to say something a little bit different. I hear, and I get, in fact, a lot of pressure from other pastors, and I hear them say things like this. It's important that you take your faith into the voting booth. Pastors need to remind their congregations to take their faith with them when they cast their ballot. And I think, and please understand, I think that this is wrong. What I think we need in the voting booth is not faith, but reason. Now, we should always have faith, faith in God, but not faith in man. It's no coincidence that we say, trust not in rulers, they are but mortal. Earthborn they are and soon decay. We have trust in God, not in men. But remember, God rules this world through two unique mechanisms, two kingdoms we sometimes call it, the right hand and the left hand kingdom of God, the state and the church. The right-hand kingdom of God is the church where the Lord rules through His Word, where the gospel and the forgiveness of sins comes forth, where the sacraments are distributed, where the Lord dwells with us according to His mercy and His kindness. And this is where we need faith. This is where we trust the promises that the Lord gives. And here in the church, the Lord accounts this faith as righteousness. But the Lord also rules through His left-hand kingdom, which is the state, where the Lord rules through earthly authority. And here the Lord manifests Himself in justice. At least, that's how He desires to manifest Himself, in justice. And this left-hand kingdom is ruled by reason, not faith. The law, not the gospel. So what we need with us when we go into the voting booth is not the creed, but the Ten Commandments. Does this make sense? I, I, I have a feeling as I was working on this sermon that we, we talk about this so rarely, which is maybe my own fault, that we have to cover a lot of ground just in one, in one shot. We don't take with us the creed, but the Ten Commandments. We're not electing in the voting booth a pastor, but a president. We don't need someone who's orthodox. We need someone who's reasonable who by reason understands natural law, who understands that the government is there for the very purpose of keeping the laws that God has built into this creation. This means, and this might be a surprise to you, but this means that the Christian and the pagan should vote the same way if they are both reasonable people. But reason, I'm afraid, is a difficult thing to find nowadays. And politics, at least in our context, is at very best blustery. (laughs) So we want to cut through the bluster and consider simply 
how does the law, natural law, and natural reason, how does it inform our vote? Now, I printed out for you a little uh, pamphlet, something I put together four years ago before the 2008 election, and that's in the bulletin, uh, A Voter's Guide to the Ten Commandments, and that gets into a little bit more detail, and there you can have it in print, so you can read it yourself. Uh, it talks about especially a couple things that I'm not going to mention here in this sermon, the connection between the state and the family and why it is that the Christian votes, namely to serve our neighbor, not to serve ourselves. So that's in there, and I encourage you to have a look at it. But, but here's a, a few other thoughts. The first is this. We understand the Ten Commandments, which we heard God giving in the Old Testament reading uh, from Mount Sinai to the people. We understand the Ten Commandments to be a distillation of natural law. Now, remember when you were in high school and you had to read some sort of massive text, 900 pages, and you just didn't do it, and now you have to read it two days later? And so you walked to the library and, and, and conspicuously found the cliff notes? <laughs> the, you know the cliff notes? They're the summary of the text. You, you have in 20 pages what you normally have in 2,000. I've heard about them anyways, rumor of them. Now, you can get there by reading the book, but you can get there a little bit faster by reading the cliff notes. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are the cliff notes to natural law. You don't need the Ten Commandments to understand the Ten Commandments. It just helps you get there faster. It's like taking a shortcut to the truth that is inherent in nature, in the natural structure of the universe. And, it, and so it's knowing and understanding the Ten Commandments that actually makes us reasonable people. And keeping them makes us wise. In the Ten Commandments, and this is the second point, we see the Lord protecting the things that He's instituted in the world. The Fourth Commandment, for example, honor your father and your mother, protects God's gift of family and authority. The Fifth Commandment, you shall not murder, protects the Lord's gift of life. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery, protects the Lord's gift of marriage. The Seventh Commandment, you shall not steal, protects the Lord's gift of stuff, <laughs> possessions. The authority to put your name on a thing, private property. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, protects the Lord's gift of a good reputation and a good name. All of these are God's uh, 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 rules put in place to protect these things that He gives. And just as the Ten Commandments, that is, the law protects these things, so should the government. And this, then, is how we evaluate the government how we evaluate candidates, how we evaluate those people, those men and women who are asking for our votes. Do they support the institutions established by God in nature? Do they support and defend the institutions of family, the institution of life, the institution of marriage, the institution of ownership, the institution of a good reputation? These are the questions we ask that guide us when we cast our ballot. And the most important, if ever we have conflicting institutions, the most important of all of these is the institution of life. Now, the political conversation around life really gets around the topic of abortion. I suspect if if things were different, that there would be many other places where the conversation about life could actually enter the conversation, like how we treat the elderly, or should we go to war, or how much should the government be involved in health care, etc. 
but all of these questions have to take a back seat to the question, should we protect the life of children who are in their mother's womb? And the answer to that question, not from the scriptures, the answer to that question from reason is yes. The womb ought to be the safest place in all of the world and not the most dangerous. I've weighed these words to make sure that what I'm saying to you does, uh, is not my own opinion uh, and to be in danger of that. And I think I can say these things with confidence. That if Jesus delays, and our day, our era in history would be recorded in the books, in the history books, that it would be considered one of the most darkest and shameful days of all of human existence with the mass genocide of entire generations. The numbers are staggering. Worldwide, there are approximately 42 million abortions every year. 115,000 a day. In the United States, and these are a bit old statistics, this is 1996. In, in the United States, 1.37 million abortions a year or 3,700 a day. Which means, if you can try to fathom this, that one third, over one-third of the people who die in the United States every day are unborn children and who die without a funeral. And this is our shame. If as a society and as a culture and as a nation we are unable to, to recognize the importance of the Lord's institution of life, and offer protection to all people, even if they are in the womb, then none of the other institutions that God has established even matter. The economy, which is a seventh commandment institution. Terror attacks, which is a fourth commandment issue. None of these things matter. Now, I, and I think you would feel the same way, I hate to be a one-issue voter, but it's not your fault. It's the issue's fault. Now, with this entire conversation, there is for us uh, much shame and perhaps guilt as we consider as a nation our place in history and as we consider ourselves as individuals where we stand at this place in history. And so I don't, want to, I, I, I don't want to send you out of here with, with only this law. I want to speak to you as more than just reasonable pe people, but also I want to speak to you as Christians. But let this then be, uh, let this be your guide when you vote, that you vote with your reason, which is guided by the Ten Commandments. But perhaps because politics is such a mess, and because we have so much sin to go around, not only as a nation, but also uh, as families and as individuals. We rejoice that Jesus has not just instituted the state, but that he has also instituted the church. The state exists so that there could be order in the world. The church exists so that there could be mercy in the world. The state exists so that there would be law the church exists so that we would hear the gospel. And we see this 
in all of its glory in the gospel text. Jesus has come home to the town and they bring to him a man who's paralyzed. He's lying on the bed and he can't, he can't even move a muscle. I imagine what it was like for these guys. I mean, this paralyzed man had friends. I don't know if you know many people who are so severely disabled, but one of the things that they are, normally don't have is friends. So it's an indication to me that this man was uh, perhaps paralyzed as an ac- in an accident later in life, and now he and now he can't move. His buddies, who uh, you know, who used to be his friends, who he used to work with, uh, they they're able to help him in carrying him around, and they carry him to Jesus, and and they lay him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says words that um, words that are so unexpected that they are a bit. Uh, shocking and maybe even offensive, not just to the Pharisees, but to us. I mean, here's this man who's, who's, who's there on the ground and can't move an inch, and Jesus looks at him and he says to this man, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> I suspect that everyone in the room would have said, Jesus, are you crazy? This man doesn't need the forgiveness of sins. This man needs to move his arms. This man needs to be able to stand up, to, to work, to, to hug his family, to feed himself, to change his own clothes. This man needs muscles that pull his arms around. This man needs, this man needs strength so that he can, so he can stand on his own. And you're going to tell this man that his sins are forgiven? I suspect that everyone in the room would have had that shocking reaction, except perhaps this man. <laughs> And that if you could have looked close enough at his eyes to see what was in his own heart, that those words, you are forgiven, would have set him free. His, 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 his body might not have been able to move. He would have still been bound in his paralysis. But these words from Jesus would have given him life. Your sins are forgiven. Now the Pharisees are fussing at Jesus and saying, How can you say your sins are forgiven? Are you God? So Jesus asked the question, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? And it's a good question to consider. It's probably easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can t- see if you're telling the truth or not. But probably the forgiveness of sins is the more difficult thing to do. So Jesus says that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he does it. Jesus Jesus wants you to know more than anything else that your sins are forgiven. Jesus wants you to know more than more than anything else that he loves you. Jesus wants you to know as the most important thing for you ever to consider in your entire life that he will let nothing stand between you and him, not your sin, not your not your death, not your suffering, not your trouble, or the trouble that surrounds you. Woe is me, said Isaiah, when the Lord tried to call him into the prophetic office, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But the Lord sent the angel from the altar to touch his lips and to make him clean, and so Jesus does for you. He forgives your sins. I don't know if, and I think that, this is maybe just me, but it might be with you also that 
that every time I consider the state of this world and the, and the darkness that surrounds us, I'm given over to a little bit of melancholy or a little bit of despair. But the gospel undoes even this. For Jesus doesn't just say to the man, your sins are forgiven. But he says to him also, take heart. Be of good cheer. For the one who forgives you is the one who has overcome the world. And the one who forgives you is the one who is returning to make all things new. The one who forgives you is the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and who sits on the throne of heaven ruling and reigning for your sake. So dear saints, dear Christians, dear reasonable people, <laughs> take heart. Your sins are forgiven. In the name of Jesus, amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's Word of Hope. Hope Lutheran Church is located at 1345 Macon Street in Aurora, Colorado. Their weekly schedule is as follows. Sunday morning worship at 915, adult Bible class and youth Sunday school at 1045 a.m. On Tuesday mornings, there is a matin service at 830 a.m. with a Bible class to follow at 930 a.m. You can find out more about Hope Lutheran Church at www.hope-aurora.org. That's www.hope-aurora.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in His grace.